I uh, had some flashbacks of Zoom uh, over the last the whole COVID years that we did Zoom for everything. Thank goodness we're back a little bit better and able to gather together. So please pray with me. God, we are grateful this morning to be able to worship you. We ask uh, for your help as we study your word. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Christ's name I pray, <clears throat> amen. Well, it's uh, good to be with you again today. We're gonna continue with our summer study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And last week, we saw a beautiful introduction to this letter and how we have received spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, that we've been adopted, that we've been chosen, forgiven, and redeemed, that we've been marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't had a chance to be with us for travel or for other reasons over the last couple of weeks, I encourage you to go online and take a look at the sermon or maybe even download the podcast and listen to it there as well. But today, we want to look at the remaining section of chapter one, and it's one of my favorite parts of the entire letter. And this book has always been a favorite of mine, but not probably for the reasons that you think. Now, I am not a world traveler by any stretch of the imagination, I oftentimes complain and lament to my family when I have to drive into Humble to do anything, <laughs> especially when King would drive such a mess, right? But uh, nonetheless, pre-COVID, um, our family had a chance to visit the area that Paul is referring to in our text today. We actually had a chance to visit Ephesus. And while our trip was a ton of fun, Ephesus, for me, was the highlight of our trip. It was an opportunity to see with my own eyes what it was like to walk the streets, to see the structures, to imagine Paul preaching, teaching, and praying for the Ephesians. It was an amazing picture and brings back wonderful memories for me. And I've always loved the way that Paul preaches in the New Testament, but I especially love the way Paul prays. I really love the way Paul prays. And as we turn to our text this morning, Paul is gonna pray. And boy, does he pray. I want you to notice that he doesn't pray for the things that you and I pray for. Maybe like family or our portfolios or that we remain free from illness and disappointment. Paul prays for something different. I sense that he knows something that I should know, but that I sometimes forget. Paul asks for wisdom and revelation, that they may know him better, that their eyes will be open, and that they can experience and tap into a power that is already available to them. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter one, verses 15 through 23. And we're gonna be reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Ever since I heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope 
he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that Christ raised from the dead and seated him in the place of honor on God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all the things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete in Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there are a few times throughout Paul's letter in the New Testament that we get a glimpse glimpse of Paul's prayer closet. We get to listen in and learn how and what Paul prays for, for the churches that he ministers to. And as we get to listen in this morning to Paul's prayer, right off the bat, we see that it's different. In verse 15, he says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks and remembering you in my prayers. Paul has a special relationship with the church in Ephesus. He's heard about their faith. He's been there. He helped them build this church. And so this church has a special place in his heart. The Ephesians had received the blessing that is found in Christ and were chosen by the Father, sealed by the Spirit through Jesus Christ himself. And for this reason, because of this, I have heard of your faith in Jesus that you all are sharing in the blessing of being chosen by the Father. And while this is not really the main point of the passage, I think it's an important point. Think about Paul's faith and love for this church in Ephesus. Their actions are driving Paul to his knees in prayer and continual thanksgiving. And the question that I found myself asking as I read through the text was, what would my response be if I heard of brothers or sisters growing in their faith in churches in Asia or South America or Peru? Would I stop and give thanks? Honestly, my response would probably be, hmm, That's nice, I wish it would happen here. Paul says that ever since I heard about your faith and love, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. For us today, I think there would be a sense of obligation, but not just obligation, but a privilege to pray when we hear of the power of the gospel transforming people's lives. It should automatically call forth an overflowing sense of abundant gratitude in us. And then Paul moves into the substance and purpose for which he prays. In verse 17, it says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Paul prays for the church in Ephesus that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they would know him better. This is at the heart of Paul's desire for the church. At the heart of Paul's letter is that, that, not, is that they would not just know God, that they, that they would not just have a rite of passage 
into the spiritual blessings that he gave him, but that they would realize that there is immeasurably more to be experienced in the knowledge of God. It's the kind of knowledge that is personal. It's not head knowledge, but it's heart knowledge. I think it's been said from this pulpit before, but the longest journey in the Christian life is from your head to your heart, 18 inches. And this is especially true when we wrestle with what we know about God to experiencing the comprehension and excitement of loving God with all our hearts. Now, I have personally seen this in my own faith walk with Christ. I have attempted to resolve the struggles in my spiritual life with critical thinking and rational thought, the things that I learned in the business world. I wrongly assumed a mixture of my prayers to God and my cognitive abilities would produce a growing spiritual life. I thought that if I learned and worked at trying to apply God's word, I would instinctively live a godly life. But I was naive. I was naive to think that if I learned about the love of God in my head, I would naturally grow closer to God in my walk with him. That I would also feel and experience the presence of love of God in my heart. To me, in my flawed human mind, it made logical sense. However, I realized through God's grace that I was incapable of critically thinking my way to understanding God's love for me. Thinking is not feeling, and feelings are more than rational thoughts as our emotions flow from the inside out and not from the outside in. This is what Paul prays for, that the Ephesians would personally know God better. It doesn't matter how much head knowledge they had. Paul knew that there would come a time and point in their lives where they would personally have to encounter the living Jesus Christ in their heart. He says, above all else, Christians, know God better. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. In other words, it requires more than the intellectual reading of a book or two. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit through God's grace and mercy to gain the spirit of wisdom and revelation that God discloses to us. I think marriage is probably a pretty good picture of this kind of relationship. And while I've been married a long time, I am always discovering new things about my wife. And these new things that I discover make our lives immeasurably more enjoyable each and every day. There's never a point where I feel like I know everything I need to know about Esther. How much more then would it be when we come into relationship to God, is there immeasurably more to be experienced, to be known, to be treasured? And this is what Paul prays for, that we would know him better, that we would know the God of the universe in the same way that we would know our spouse, a friend or a loved one. So how, do, how does this work? How do we come to experience God in a deeper way? J.I. Packer wrote a book, Knowing God, and he says, knowing about God is crucially important for living our lives. We must take time and learn about him, be silent with him. If we disregard the study of God, we sentence ourselves to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded 
we will waste our lives and lose our souls. This, my friends, is the key for us in knowing God personally. The key to knowing God intimately and immeasurably more is to learn about the truths of God that we read about in Scripture and we bring these things, these truths, before him in prayer and meditation that he will reveal a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And as we uncover more about God, we will soon realize that he is the one that does all the work in our lives. He initiates the relationship and he is constantly pursuing us with his spirit. He is the one enabling wisdom and revelation so that we would know him better. The second thing that Paul's prays for in the Ephesians is that they see him. In verse 18, we read, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened The New Living Translation says flooded with light in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Paul desperately prays that the Ephesians pursue the knowledge of God. And it's not the kind of pursuit where we rack up facts about God, where we have book smarts about God. Paul is praying for that kind of experiential knowledge that comes when you hear what he says in verse 18, that the eyes of their heart are enlightened. The picture Paul paints is what is seen through their eyes is applied to their hearts. Our hearts are a place of affection, a place of understanding, the place of true relationship. And he says, I want you, Roland, I want you, Beth, I want you, Sabrina, to have that kind of understanding about God, the kind of perception and sensual experience of seeing and believing who God really is. When Paul is writing this, the heart was understood to be the center of one's personhood. It was like a seat of emotion where they felt things and a place where they also thought And when these two things come together, a place where we make a decision is made. It happens there. Paul prays that the eyes of their heart will be opened, that the eyes of their heart will be enlightened, that the God will get a hold of the central center of their being. And we are reminded in the old hymn, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. Paul's prayer to God about knowing him better is marked by three things. First, that they may know the hope of their calling and their glorious inheritance. Hope, in the modern English translation, is something that you may or may not see fruit from, and it's used in many different ways. I hope that I get all of my work done today. I hope that I have enough money to put gas in my car. There is an intrinsic element of doubt in the English word of hope, but in the Greek, there is no necessary doubt. Hope is not putting a question mark on things. In the Greek New Testament, it's putting an anticipation on things. What you look for, what you anticipate, and what you long for. In Romans says, you hope for what you have not yet received, Paul says. So here Paul writes, I pray that the eyes that your eyes may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you you see we are given this hope when we place our faith in Jesus Christ we are given certainty 
Let neither life nor death have any hold on us. And so whatever comes our way, hope is an anchor for our souls. The writer of Hebrew uses a ton of really good imagery. Something about hope, he says, it's steady, it's sure. It's a knowledge that our lives are grounded in the hope of resurrection, in this hope that one day Jesus will take all who have placed their faith in him and he will raise them, raise them to be seated with him in the heavenly places. This is the kind of hope that changes the way we think, the way we act, the way we make decisions because we no longer fear death. And so this hope, when it settles into our hearts, it should bring us joy because it brings about peace. It brings about the kind of living that is not dependent upon circumstances, but simply grounded in God. It gives us peace that no matter what life brings our way, we hold on to hope. We hold on to Jesus. We hold on to the glorious reality that we have been chosen by the Father, sealed by the Spirit through Jesus Christ. And Paul prays in verse 19 that you would know this incomparable great power. This is what he really wants them to know. Not only knowing God and knowing the hope that we have in him, the riches of his glorious inheritance, he wants them to know that he has power his incomparable great power is at work in our lives. It's kind of like he's saying, that's not enough. Let me describe it a little better. He says, this power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he rose Christ from the dead. Power is important in life and God is powerful. He created everything out of nothing by just speaking his word. Let there be light. He said, he divided a sea. He protected a guy in a lion's den. There are so many examples that show God's incomparably great power. But the power of God reaches its glorious and infinite and immeasurable fullness in salvation. The power of God is seen in Jesus' life, a life that was completely sinless. The power of God is seen in Jesus' death when he emptied himself and took on the form of a humble servant and died on the cross. The power of God is seen in Jesus' resurrection when God the Father raised the Son. The power of God is seen in Jesus' exaltation when Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father. God is powerful. God is great. The greatness of God's power is immeasurable. And perhaps the most amazing thing for all of us this morning is that God's power is towards us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that is being used right here to help us know God better, to open our eyes, to sanctify us in holiness and righteousness so that we look more and more like Jesus. And Jesus wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of this power toward those of us who believe. And in verse 21, we see that Jesus is above all. He is above all rule and authority and dominion and name. This means that nothing can separate us from his love, not trouble nor hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, neither death nor life, 
nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, well, so what? What do we, what do, we do with this, I guess, this morning? God promises to be with each and every one of us in our Christian lives. He wants us to walk with us in a manner worthy of our calling, to grow in humility, gentleness, patience, and love, to help us take off the old self and put on the new self, to give us the courage to share his word and to speak his truth, to be the best husband, father, wife, mother that we can possibly be by his immeasurably great power. For you and for me, in you and in me, know this gospel and believe this gospel. Jesus is here. Jesus is present. Jesus wants to know more, to know the hope of the resurrection, to know the mighty power that rose Christ from the dead, to know that Jesus is more than being a covenant partner at First Pres. It is, more, it is more than a rite of passage. Knowing Jesus, the true knowledge of Jesus is about resurrection power, resurrection power. And my prayer for each of us this morning is that we, like Paul, desire to know more about God, that we would know the hope to which he has been called, that we would experience the resurrection power that God so graciously and generously has given us. Praise God for Paul's wonderful prayer for the church and for you and for me. All blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's prayer. We thank you for what you have done for us on the cross and for the opportunity to know you better, to have hope and to see the great incomparable power you have demonstrated when Christ was raised from the dead. Let us bank, bask in this, uh, all of the gifts that you have given us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.